Father God, Lord, we thank you that you are such an awesome God, Lord, and we can have this freedom to sing, sing to you and worship you, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord, which tells us of your love and your plan for us, Lord, and how you you've deemed us, Lord, and what you did and paid the price for. Just pray for Philip now as he brings us your word. Just pray a special blessing for him as he, as he shares your word with us, Lord. Just help him and help us, Lord, to be hearers of your word and doers, Lord. And we just pray for um, wisdom for Philip as you pray. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, I wonder what the longest time you've had to wait is. I think the time of waiting that seemed longest for me was in an airport waiting for my next plane on the way to Singapore. It was something like nine hours one time. It was so long, just sat, stuck in this small building. I thought, man, is this plane ever going to arrive? And I think that the readers of James, the first readers of James, felt a similar way about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, because they were in some hard times. If you remember, they had some rich people who were bringing them to court, who were giving them a really hard time. And James was writing to these people to tell them about how to deal with their trials and temptations. And these things that God had James write are valuable for us today as well. So let's read from James chapter 5 and starting at verse 7. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the autumn and the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under such suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance, and you can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. So this passage that we're looking at is divided into three sections. The first section is, um, starts with my brothers, and that's the way that James marks out his sections. And the first section is why we should wait for the Lord with patience and endurance. And the second section is about why we should not grumble. We should be patient and enduring with one another. And the third section is why we should not take any oaths in God's name. And so if we're looking at why we should endure, and we're going to look at how we should endure. So if you remember, so far in his letter, God has had James tell his readers that being rich and selfish is not going to get you out of your trials and temptations. And it's important to remember that in Greek, there's actually only one word which is translated trials and temptations. 
So it can be translated either one, depending on the context, but it means both things. In fact, God said that he would judge the rich and the selfish people that James's readers were looking up to. And those rich people, they didn't love the poor like God did. So God was going to come in judgment. And he was telling James's readers, don't look up to those people. Don't look up to the selfish and rich. That's not going to help you in your trials and temptations. Instead, wait for the coming of the Lord. And this is what we read in James chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. So for the first readers of James, their trials were that they would want to be selfish and rich so that they would not be dragged off to court. And, they, and God's response is that they should not lead a revolt, was not that they should join the rich, but they should patiently endure and wait. Why? Because Jesus is coming to judge. Jesus would come in just judgment and make things right. And that's what Jesus will do when he returns. He's going to make things right by judging everyone who's wrong, by judging everything that's wrong, and he's going to bring in his amazing kingdom, his kingdom where there'll be no crying, no dying, no suffering, and no pain. And so a life of perfect fellowship with God forever is absolutely amazing. But I think that few of us today will be dragged off to court for our faith. I think that few of us today will face the destruction of our houses because we are Christians. I think that for many of us today, our trials and temptations are actually the opposite. I think that for most of us, life is so comfortable. Our major temptation is that we will just stop doing right and become selfish and live for our own comfort. But even for us, in our trial today, whether it's a hard time, like a house that's demolished, or whether it's an easy time, like a man relaxing on a hammock, either way, God's advice is still the same. We need to wait with patience for God's coming and do it in such a way that we are patient in doing good until he arrives. We should endure Patiently endure in doing good, because Jesus is coming to judge. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, wait patiently as you wait for the Lord's return. So how can we wait patiently? How do we do this? Well, the first way we need to do it is like a farmer waiting for rain. And we read this in James chapter 5, verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, waiting patiently for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Normally when you think of waiting, you think of a person at a bus stop, someone who's just not doing anything, twiddling his thumbs and waiting. But a farmer who waits for rain is waiting in a very different way. He's not going to sit down and watch TV all day. He's going to be as ready as he can be for that rain. He'll make sure the plough is sharp. He'll make sure the seed is ready. He'll make sure that everything is going to last as long as possible. He might tighten his belt. He might dig some wells if it's really extreme. He'll do everything he can to wait and be ready for that long-awaited-for rain. And as far as I've read, in Israel, they, they had two 
um, major rains in the wet season. They had the early rains and the late rains. And for the early rains, the early rains made the ground soft enough to plow and plant, and the later rains made, gave the fruit their final boost so that it could be ready for harvest. So if there were no early rains, no sowing of seed. And if there were no late rains, no harvesting of fruit. And so we're told to wait in an active way, in a prepared way for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So like that farmer, we are to endure actively and wait for Jesus to come and judge the powerful and pig-headed of our world. And even if our lives are easy, we still need to do that. We can pray. We can care for the poor, as James tells us to do. We can testify to the death and resurrection of our Lord, and we can serve him with all our heart, whether our times are easy or our times are hard. So the, the message of, of this part of James is the way that we're to wait for the Lord Jesus Christ is in an active way, like a farmer waiting for rain. Be godly and ready for Jesus' return. The second way that we can be ready for our Lord's return is to commit our hearts to waiting for him with this active endurance. And this is what we read in James chapter 5 and verse 8. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. You know, the going might be rough, the waiting might be tough, the oppression might be painful, or maybe the lack of opposition might feel like a padded room. But regardless of that, we need to be committed to enduring actively in prayer and caring for the poor, as James says, until Jesus comes to judge this world. Unless we're fully committed with our whole heart, it's going to be way too easy for us to give in to the same temptations that James's first readers did, thinking that riches will get us out of all our hard times and thinking that we can just forget the poor and be concerned about our own comfort. So the question for us is how are we going to strengthen our hearts to serve the Lord with commitment until he comes? What will you do? What will we do? Well, James has some suggestions to start off with. And his first suggestion is don't grumble against each other. And here we restart the second section of James's writing. Where he says, Do not grumble against one another, my brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, look, check it out. The judge is standing right at the door. He's right there. He's at the door. So we need to be patient with each other with each other, and leave room for each other to make mistakes. Because when we grumble, that shows that we've lost patience and we've lost our battle with temptation and trials. So we need to be committed to being patient with each other and allowing each other to grow. Instead of grumbling... We could use that energy of our frustration to think about how we could build each other up and how we could help each other to serve the Lord more accurately. And as, as you do that, to also allow the other person space to build you up. Because I'm sure that all of us have times when we're frustrated with one another and would like to grumble, but instead we need to encourage each other and build each other up. 
And James has a very good reason for telling us this. He's already told us that the riches of the selfish and wealthy have already failed them. God's judgment is already there. And now he gives the same sense of imminence, the same sense of Jesus is very close and he's our judge. There's no door too soundproof. There's no door so soundproof that, that Jesus would not be able to know what we're thinking and how we're treating each other. And, you know, as Christians, we have so many trials and temptations. Surely that's enough without grumbling against each other as well. Doing that, I think, is like kicking someone when they're down instead of helping them up. So James says, don't grumble against one another so that you will not be judged. And our judge, he's standing at the door. I think one way that we can do this is to keep Jesus' purpose and his end goal in focus. When Jesus comes, he's going to come to fix things, to make things right, to restore everything to the way that it should be, and even to restore us as believers. And we call that sanctification, being finally made to be fully like Jesus Christ. And that's amazing. And so as we look forward and say, wow, that's Jesus' goal, we can... We can allow Jesus to work through that, through us in that, and we can build each other up in our faith so that we can all endure faithfully until the coming of the Lord. Now, we're still in the same section on grumbling, and James gives us an example of someone who endured in this way, and his name is Job. And so let's read this in James chapter 5 and verse 10 to 11. Brothers and sisters, As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You know, if I was to spend some time giving you a really good example of an Old Testament person who endured right till the very end, I would choose one of those amazing prophets like Jeremiah or Hosea or Ezekiel, guys who, who challenged people to obey God's word with tremendous courage and tremendous compassion and even the very worst of circumstances at the bottom of wells when everybody else was against them, when armies were invading, these amazing guys who endured so well. But James has spent a lot of time talking about someone quite different, someone called Job. You know, Job, he was in a very difficult situation. In one day, he lost all his children. In another day, he lost everything he owned. And on top of that, he lost his health. He was really sick. And on top of that, his friends came and they were just saying, you're such a bad guy. How, you must have been so bad to deserve all this suffering. And they were really nasty to him. And so Job, he had huge trials. But as you read the book of Job, it seems like Job can't stop complaining. Sure, he responds to the accusations of his friends, but he complains and he complains and he complains. So why would James give Job as an example of someone who endured to the end like that? I think we have to look at a few things. We have to look first at who was it that Job was complaining to. Job spent most of his time 
complaining to God about his situation. He spent a lot of time complaining to God about his situation. And he spent very little time complaining about his friends. You see, Job wanted God to take action. Job trusted that God was able to answer his prayers. Job wanted God to prove that he was a fair God, a just God after all, that, that God would come and say, you know what, Job, you don't actually deserve the suffering. These accusations from your friends are wrong. Job wanted God to vindicate him and rescue him, and Job was pleading with God to come and do this. In the end, Job went a little bit too far. He ended up saying that God was not just, that God was not fair, and he had to repent in the end. But James here gives Job as an example of someone who, first and foremost, his complaint was with God about his situation. And we find this pattern in, throughout the Bible, in the Psalms, in the Lament Psalms in particular, and also in other parts of the New Testament. For example, we could think of Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. In Romans 8, we learn that Jesus suffered, that creation suffers, that believers suffer. And we read in verse 23, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And talks about how the Holy Spirit takes our groans as prayers to God. God has no problem with us groaning to him about our situations and our trials and temptations. There's no problem with that. God is an amazing God. He's able to answer prayer. Just look at Job's life. But God does have a problem with us grumbling against each other because when we do that, we're attacking the community of God and making it harder for each of us to endure our own trials and temptations. So again, instead of grumbling, we can just help each other up. James gives us another reason why we should endure like Job. Not only because Jesus will judge and he's at the door, he can come at any moment, but also because God is super compassionate and full of mercy. And he gives Job as an example of that. Think about the compassionate way God ended Job's suffering. Job had twice as much stuff. He had sons and daughters, and he was vindicated. God had said that his friends had not spoken what was right about him, as Job had. And even more than that, Job could say that he had heard and seen God. He said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job had no more questions after that. He had met the one who is the answer. You know, when Jesus comes again, James says he will sort things out and make things right with the compassion and the mercy that he showed to Job. And in Greek, that is super compassion, a very high level of compassion that our God has. And now we'll look at the third section of, of um, James's writing to us. 
We've looked at the fact that we must endure because Jesus is coming to judge. We've looked at the, the fact that we can endure by strengthening our hearts and by being prepared like a farmer is um, getting ready for rain. We've seen that we can endure by not grumbling against each other and enduring like Job because God is compassionate and merciful. And now in verse 12, we're going to read about not taking oaths. James chapter 5, verse 12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear an oath, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So I guess for us, the first thing we have to ask is, what is an oath? That's a pretty weird word that we don't use a lot today. It's actually a promise, a really serious promise that says, the thing that I'm saying is so true that God will back me up on it. That's exactly what an oath is. To make an oath is to say that God will guarantee the truthfulness of what you're saying. And in the Old Testament, there are some curses specially put there by God for those who break their oaths. Because to break an oath, that's like breaking fellowship with God. And even when people made silly oaths, oaths that were just off the top of the head in the spur of the moment, they still had to ask for forgiveness and go through sanctification and do a whole lot of things because to make an oath is a really serious matter. It's saying, God will back me up on this. God agrees with this. God is with me in this, and I'm absolutely going to do it. So an oath is different to a vow. A vow is like when um, Hannah was praying to God, and she said, God, if you give me a son, he'll, he can serve at the temple. That's an if. If I get a son, then he can serve at the temple. That's quite different. An oath is what God used when he said to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. An oath is what um, David used when um, a guy named Shimei was insulting him. A guy named Shimei was insulting King David, and in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 23, King David says to Shimei, you shall not die, and the king gave him his oath. He gave, the king gave him this absolute promise. You know what? God is going to back me up in this. I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to kill you. It's okay, even though you insulted the king of Israel. And I think that today... We don't hear people make oaths very often. I can't actually think of the last time I heard somebody say, oh, I promise to God. I can't think of the last time I heard somebody say that. But it's actually very easy to fall into the same sin of, of, that's being written against here. And the reason for that is it's very easy for us to say and think that God will back us up on whatever we do. God is totally with me on this. God, God will back me up. God, you know, that, that kind of attitude, that same belief that is there with oaths, that also can be very common for us today. And no doubt the first readers of James thought that when they were arguing with each other and ignoring the poor. But why, why forbid an oath? Why, why, why would God say that that's a bad idea? I mean, people used oaths in the Old Testament. What's, what's wrong with it now? But if you read Matthew chapter 23, you'll find that in New Testament times, some oaths were considered serious and some weren't. In fact, they weren't using oaths to like, confirm something that's true. They were using it as like, 
well, I only have to say what's true if I use an oath, and other times I can say what's false. And so they were using it to kind of validate their, uh, their right to, to lie or to go back on their word. And Jesus just blasted the Pharisees for that. <laughs> but the Bible makes it clear that God considers all oaths as serious. All oaths as very serious. And so God actually, he wants us to be true in everything we say, to tell the truth in everything we say. And so we shouldn't need to, be, to use an oath. If we say yes, we should mean it and do it. If we say no, we should mean it and do it. So in the Bible, oaths, just to clarify, oaths were normally used to confirm really major things like forgiveness and covenant promises. That's what God mainly used them for. So let's endure and wait for Jesus' coming by not grumbling against one another and also by not just assuming that God is with us in every single thing we do. Instead, we have to change to follow him. He will not change to, to validate everything that we do. And if we keep those two things in mind, it'll be a great start. And, of course, we need to keep the return of Jesus in mind and what he's about. So if I were to sum up this passage, I would say it this way. This passage was written so that we would respond to trials by enduring with patience and godliness and the confidence that Jesus will come and judge both them and us. May his name be honoured. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are coming to judge. Lord, it's really awesome to think that you will come with true justice and set everything right. Lord, we want to thank you that you're also our judge and you are full of super compassion and mercy. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us alone to struggle, but you help us in our trials. You give us the strength to carry on for you. And Lord, we pray that we would be diligent in waiting actively for you in obedience and godliness so that we are ready for your coming at every moment. And we give you thanks and praise for your wonderful word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.